here's what I want you to do for the next couple of minutes. I want you to take just a couple of minutes, take the pencil or the pen that you've got and, and a prayer card in your outline. And I want you to think about, okay, and write it down, okay? I want you to write uh, about any crossroads moment that you are in right now in your life, okay? Are you at any kind of a crossroads? If you are, I want you to write it down. And no fair looking at your neighbor's paper, okay? This is personal, okay? Take a couple minutes to do that. Any crossroads that you're at right now? Did you think of one or maybe two? Um, if you gave me five minutes, I could fill up a page. I really could, you know. Uh, we, we mentioned several of these things in prayer concerns. Don't you know that these people, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, several things that, that we're going through. Okay, so what do you do when you come to a crossroads in your life? Now, that's what Daniel is going to teach us how to do well today in chapter 9. He's going to teach us how to pray in a crossroads moment. Now, do people, when you're in a crossroads moment, do they give you unsolicited and maybe not all that good of advice? Okay. Uh, just going to tell you, um, um, let me give you some, some examples, and then these aren't necessarily bad advice, but um, to newlyweds, never go to bed mad, okay? Somebody might say that to you. You got a brand new baby. Live to be the kind of person you will want your child to marry someday. That's good advice. Um, you're just buying your first house. Um, don't ignore home maintenance. Change your change your air filters once a month, you know, all that stuff, right? My dad used to say to me about car maintenance, he would say, always take care of the oil and the water, the gas will take care of itself, okay? Good advice, unheeded most of the time, but in my life, but I'm better now, um, okay? Um, a new driver, teenage driver, 16-year-old driver, the vehicle that you drive can be one of the deadliest machines ever admitted. Okay, so you get it? We get, we get kind of these little snippets of advice when we're going through times of, uh, of kind of transition, uh, times where there's a crossroads. Now, Daniel's going to make a decision at a crossroads moment. He's going to do some things with it. He's going to act on his faith in a way that can teach us something, and that's what we're going to look at today. Now, after the incident of the fiery furnace... Um, featuring Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, okay? We don't get those names in the Bible, but, uh, but once. But after the fiery furnace experience for them, we, they kind of pass from the scene. It's not like they're no, no longer there, but we, we don't really hear much about them in the book of Daniel. The spotlight turns to Daniel himself and how he acts on his faith in the rest of the book, and some of it is certainly prophetic. Now, much happens in the book of Daniel between what we've looked at before and what we're looking at today. And by the way, next week we'll be in chapter 10 and 11, and then we're going to move into the book of James for a little bit. Uh, in, in chapter 4, he interprets a dream for King Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 5, he interprets the famous handwriting on the wall uh, with the Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar. In chapter 6, which is what we looked at last week, um, Daniel survives um, a, a sleepover with a group of hungry lions. We, we read about that last week. Uh, in, um, 
And so then after that, in chapters 7 through 12, it's going to record a series of dreams and visions that are granted to Daniel about things to come. And as he's dealing with that, smack in the middle of that, he's going to pray in chapter 9. And that's what we're going to read about today. Now, Steve, if you would go to chapter 9 and read verse 4 down through 8. Okay, the year, and we can track this pretty closely, the year is 538 B.C., all right, uh, because we can know about the dynasties. Now, if, if your Bible reads like mine, if you look back at verse 1 and 2, it's going to tell you that, that Darius, who's the king, um, was the, it, my Bible tells me he's the king of Ahasuerus. Does yours say that, or does it say He's the, the son of somebody else. Xerxes. I took some, some um, Xerxes this morning, didn't I, for an allergy thing? <laughs> Zertex, Xerxes, something. Okay. Um, okay. So, do Yeah, okay. That's why, because I can't think. Um, anyway, it, Darius was, was a king in a dynasty of, of the Medes. Now, you and I know, we've looked at this for several weeks, that, that Judah's captivity began in 605. We're now at 538. And Daniel's going to know, although uh, he's, he's sure of it by faith, he doesn't have any indication of it yet, although he may know some political things that are happening. But Daniel knows by faith because he's read Jeremiah 29, okay, he's read Jeremiah's prophecy. Daniel knows by faith that this captivity is supposed to last about 70 years. Do the math. Starts at 605, it's now 538. It's coming to an end. By the way, I, think, I find it intriguing. Many of us, maybe most of us in this room, could at least halfway quote Jeremiah 2911. Okay? Uh, you know, the plans I have for you. What I have failed to notice until this study, until my, my recent reading through Jeremiah, is that verse 10, which immediately precedes that, is the verse that predicts you're going to be there 70 years and then you're coming home. Isn't that interesting to put in context that beautiful, um, I've got a plan for you in 2911 has to do with God saying through the prophet Jeremiah you're going to be in captivity, but only 70 years, and then you're coming home. Daniel is aware of that prophecy when this chapter dawns here. And, and he knows that the captivity is nearing an end. So if you read verse 3, which is right before what Steve began with, if you read verse 3, so what did he do? He fasted and prayed. By the way, that's never a bad idea. It's never a bad idea. He fasts and prays, and we're going to look at the text of his prayer today. Now, Daniel, think about it in another context, okay? Regardless of how old he was when they were taken in captivity, and he was probably a really young man. 
perhaps a late teen, as were his three friends. If nearly 70 years have passed, Daniel is now a fairly elderly fella. Okay? I'm not going to say an old man, because there may be people in here that are older than Daniel was at that time, and might be offended by that, so I'm not going to say that, okay? But he was older, okay? He had his AARP card. We'll say it that way. By the way, just so you know, I'm with you. I, when I go to get my hair cut, I say with great delight, I get the old guy's discount. Okay? Daniel got the old guy's discount when he get, went to get his hair cut. What is, is real about this is that Daniel knows that for these nearly 70 years, God has been faithful. And in that sense, he's not, God has not only been faithful, but Daniel's relationship with God has become very personal. You notice he uses a personal pronoun, my. My God. My God. Now, so what goes in your blank for nearly 70 years, the Lord has proven himself to be faithful and his God has become very personal to him. Don't you know in those three times a day when he opened the shutters and prayed toward Jerusalem that God just became more and more and more real to him? How wonderful. How about you? Is your, God, is your relationship with God a personal one? That's a very, very important question. Is your relationship with God a personal one? Or do you just kind of refer to God in fairly nebulous terms? Is he your God? When you talk about him to your friends, is it clear that you know him, that you have a friendship with him? By the way, that's what Jesus died to make possible for you and me. Even, can I say it? Can I be bold enough to say it? You have the potential of becoming, of knowing God in a more intimate fashion than even Daniel did. Because you've got the Holy Spirit 24-7, 365 as a believer. That's not as true in the Old Testament as it was after Acts 2. Okay? Is your relationship with God a personal one? Now, as Daniel begins to pray, and he's going to start praying uh, in the middle part of verse 4, and by the time we get to verse 5, something takes place that only happens one time in the Old Testament, okay? The only place in the Old Testament where all four of these thoughts happen in one spot is here in Daniel 9, 5, okay? He models for you and me an appropriate confession and he says, fill in your blanks. And by the way, he's going to include himself in this group. Okay? We have sinned. We have done wrong. It's kind of hard to form those words sometimes, isn't it? Remember Fonzie on Happy Days? Couldn't see the word. He went to Richie and said, I was... Couldn't get it out. We have done wrong. We've been wicked. I don't know that I have ever prayed those words. Lord, I have been wicked. It's been true. But have I ever said it? Uh, boldness here. We have sinned. We've done wrong. We've been wicked. We have rebelled. 
Daniel includes himself in this confession. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And he says something like, we are four times guilty. I read this week about uh, someone who uh, may have inspired you back in the day. She did me. Her name is Marion Jones, a superstar athlete, um, a brilliant track and field star who won five medals at the 2000 Summer Olympics. Marion Jones is so fast that she could turn off the lights and be in bed before it got dark. Okay? Think about that for a minute. But she was stripped of all those medals after she admitted to doping, to steroid use. But in her public confession, she accepted full responsibility. you got to love that. I blew it. I didn't do the right thing. I did this, she says. She spent six months in prison for lying to the investigators and owned it all when it was finally done. After her time in prison, Marion Jones established a nonprofit organization called Take a Break. It's dedicated to getting young people to step back and think about the potential life-altering consequences of their decisions. Secular society's term for this is she reinvented herself. But that's not exactly what happened. The Bible would say that she acted in keeping with repentance. She asked God to change her life and turn around, which is what Daniel is dealing with here. We have sinned. We've done wrong. We've been wicked. We've rebelled. We are four times guilty. Now, notice verse 6. There's a list there of all of those who have failed to listen to God's advice and to the advice of God. Of prophets. Uh, John, if, if you would go to 2 Chronicles 36, I'm going to have you read verse 15 and 16 in just a minute. 2 Chronicles 36. Okay? Notice in the list are kings and princes, leaders. The leaders didn't listen, and as if to say that wasn't enough, who else? Well, just include, throw everybody else in there. All of us have ignored. Now, my question is, is preaching important? That's what the prophets did. That's kind of the active uh, version, really, of the gift of prophecy in our day. Is preaching important? Uh, can, I, can, I, can I give you the right answer to that one? Yeah, nod your head, yes. Is listening important? Uh, if you don't believe me, ask Jim Hampton. He, he, he did. Didn't you listen to a thing on listening this week? Didn't you tell me that? You listened to a lecture on listening the last few days? And so Sherry gave him a test when he got home. Yeah, Sherry gave him a test when he got home. I don't know how he passed. Yeah, I don't know how he passed. Okay. She sent him to a lecture on listening. Uh, you know, okay. It, it doesn't pay to know the Sunday school teacher because I know all the dirt on you. Okay. Uh, now... John, it's interesting. Here is 
what happened? Second Chronicles 36, verse 15 and 16. Go ahead and read that. Time after time after time, God sent a messenger to tell them, cut this out. And they mocked the preachers. Do you see how he does his hair? You see how he has no hair? Okay, you know, whatever. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. By the way, by verse 17, do you know what happens? By verse 17 in 2 Chronicles 36, where where John was reading, by verse 17 is where Nebuchadnezzar gets in the act. Kills some of them, carts the rest of them away. Interesting, isn't it? Listening is important. Who all have failed to listen is the question. And the answer to that is all. Now, let's go forward because we're going to read about how Daniel invokes really the goodness and the holiness of God. Um, Cindy, can I get you to read verse 15 and pick up a little bit of the in-between verses here. There is a gap here between God's faithfulness and our rebellion, the people's rebellion in their day and in our day. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, he says, uh, if, if you just scan it there, you've ignored the prophets. When the preachers have come to you, you've ignored what they've had to warn you about. Uh, if you look at verse 13, he says, if that wasn't enough, I gave you the law, the law of Moses. You've ignored that too. Literally, this was thus saith the Lord from the prophets and from the law. And you've ignored all that, he says. So, the question here is, at a time when their activity, their faithfulness, their righteousness, the righteousness of the people. We could argue the righteousness of um, the collective righteousness of the people in the church, let's say. How did that reflect on God? Here's the answer, okay? At a time when they should have brought him fame, instead they brought him shame. The nation's repeated sinfulness has brought shame, not fame. You see... What my life is supposed to do as a person who wears the name Christian, what my life is supposed to do is to bring renown to God and to his son Jesus. I'm supposed to make him look. And by the way, there's, it's not that God is cocky. It's just the way it's supposed to be. My life is not supposed to make me look good. It's supposed to make him look good. But instead, the way they have acted 
in this repeated pattern, the way they have acted is brought upon him shame, not fame. Now, I'll leave you to apply that wherever you think it needs to be applied. Okay? Instead of bringing him fame, they brought him shame. Now, interesting that when the temple, which they're going to eventually go back to and rebuild, when the temple was built and Solomon had it dedicated, Solomon warned them against all this. He said, you know, if you don't take care of things, this is going to happen. Go with me to 1 Kings, okay? It says 2 Kings, but it doesn't mean it. 1 Kings. I don't know who typed this up. First Kings, and where I want you to go with me is actually chapter 9, 1 Kings 9. So I really got it wrong, didn't I? <laughs> 843 is on your outline, which says, Here in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name. So that's the idea is, uh, when the people worship in Jerusalem at the new temple, uh, it's supposed to bring renown to God's name. That's kind of the idea there too. But look at the next chapter, First uh, Kings 9, and I'm going to begin with verse 6. But if you and your sons indeed turn away from following me and don't keep my commandments and my statutes which I've set before you, this is God warning them, and you go serve, go and serve other gods and worship them, then I'll cut off Israel from the land which I have given them. Did he do that? 70 years ago almost in our passage today. And the house which I've consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. So Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone who passes by will be astonished and hiss and say, Why has the Lord done thus in, to this land and to this house? And they will say, Because they forsake the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and adopted other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this adversity on them. You ever been part of a church dedication? A new church dedication? It's wonderful. I remember when we dedicated the first building here uh, back in 1999. I remember what a wonderful day that was. Wouldn't it have been interesting if somebody stood up on that day and said, if you don't keep it straight, this place is coming down. It's what Solomon said, the guy who built it. And Solomon is praying, and in, in his prayers, God speaks and says, don't do what the peoples around you do, and they did it anyway. The action was warned against by Solomon. They did it. Cindy, can I come back to you and have you read 17, 18, and 19? Back from Daniel 9. Okay, here's something that Daniel does that's a great pattern for us. Beginning with verse 4, and now we're in verse 16 and 17. Okay, we're in verse 17, right? 
So for all those verses, Daniel has acknowledged God, he has praised God, he has thanked God, and on behalf of the people, he has confessed to God. What goes in your blank is that for three quarters of his prayer, for three quarters of his prayer, he's three quarters through his prayer before he ever says, and God, would you do this? That's a pretty good pattern, really, you know? Acknowledging God, praising him, thanking him for the things he's done for you, confessing. By the way, my journals are full of confession, and no, you can't see them, okay? And then, and only then, do we say, okay, Lord, touch me, heal me, lead me. Take care of this. All those things, all right? Three quarters of the way through. If you look at verse 18, he says something else here that is good for you and I to know as we're crafting a faithful prayer, okay? He's going to say that the Lord's intervention that he's beginning to ask for, beginning of verse 17, the Lord's intervention won't be dependent on the righteousness of us, of the people, because they have no righteousness to claim. So if they have no righteousness to claim, then how can he dare invoke God and say, would you do this? You see, the truth is, you and I don't have any righteousness to claim either. Uh, I made a habit years ago. And it's in the context of Hebrews um, Four, verse 15 and 16, where it talks about uh, Jesus being our great high priest, who, if you remember, it says, uh, he does understand our weaknesses because he was in every way like we are, except without sin. And then it says, verse 16, it goes on to say, so you can approach the throne of God with boldness. So when I pray for you for healing, or when I pray for you in a difficult time, when I say, can I, can I take your hand and, or maybe can I put a little oil on you just symbolically and out of obedience to what James 5 says and we pray for your healing or pray for some direction. What I will often say, Lord, we ask these things not because of anything we have done, but because of what Jesus did on our behalf. I can claim boldly his righteousness. So I've got even more potential for power in prayer than Daniel could have. What he could claim is God's righteousness. But I have a Savior who lived life here for 33 years and always passed the test. He always got the answer right. He always did the right thing. And so when I pray to, to the Father and ask him my request, I can say, Lord, your son gave me the right to come to you. And I'm asking these things. I'm just going to be honest. I'm going to be bold. I'm going to ask you these things because of what he did on my behalf. That ought to give you a little bit of encouragement in your prayer. 
I hope. In verse 19, goes on to say that his renown, the Lord's renown, is at stake. Uh, Daniel goes on to say, this is your city. Jerusalem's your city. These are your people. This is your name at stake. And he goes on to say, Lord, only you can do this. Now, John, if I could ask you to go back to 2 Chronicles 36, I want you to read verse 22 and 23. Here's kind of the rest of the story. So after Daniel prays, after the 70 years is over, a new king comes to power, really a new regime comes to power. Verse 22 and 23 from 2 Chronicles 36. Let me put this in chronology for you. Daniel prays this prayer in chapter 9. And if you, if you do, if I did the chronology right, less than a year later, Cyrus comes to power. And one of the very first things he does is he says, uh, we got to return all these people back that want to go. We got to rebuild, uh, literally with with uh, treasury from the Persians, they rebuild the city, rebuild the temple. That's nuts. They, Daniel didn't even ask about that. He just said, take us back. Less than a year later, a new king comes to power. Don't you know that regularly Daniel has, has an audience with this new king because he serves him too. So he's got a lot to do with this. But God did it. Less than a year later, this, after this old man gets off of his creaky knees, don't you know, by this time they creaked. Less than a year later. History tells us that Daniel stays in Babylon. His age may have had something to do with that. Honestly, I choose to believe the reason Daniel stays in Babylon is because Darius and Cyrus said, dude, you can't leave us. He was such a leader. You remember how Darius' relationship with him last week? Was sorry that he made the edict? Couldn't wait to get up in the morning and see if he'd survived the lions? So, my, my last statement here is, Daniel lives to see his prayer answered. Because that Daniel spends much more time acknowledging than asking. What about me? What about you? Do I pray that way? I can learn a lot from Daniel and from Paul. Paul prayed a lot despite his circumstances. And frankly, if you read Philippians, he didn't pray a lot about his circumstances. I find that really intriguing. He prayed for a lot of things 
and received a lot of answers to prayer, but he often didn't pray very much, really, for his own circumstances. When he writes Philippians, he's in jail, he's older, he's in chains. I've been doing some reading the last uh, couple of weeks in my quiet time in a, in a book. I don't know if it's new or not, but it's written by Lucato um, that is based on um, um, Philippians 4. Here's what he'll say. The wildest river, oh, sorry, the widest river in the world is not the Mississippi or the Amazon or the Nile. The widest river on earth is a body of water called If Only. Throngs of people stand on its banks and cast longing eyes over the waters. They desire to cross but can't seem to find the ferry. They're convinced the If Only River separates them from the good life. If only I were thinner, I'd have the good life. If only I were richer, I'd have the good life. If only the kids would come. If only the kids were gone. If only I could leave home, move home, get married, get divorced. If only my skin were clear of pimples, my calendar free of people, my profession immune to layoffs, then I would have the good life. The if only river. Are you standing on the shore? Does it seem the good life is always one if only away, one purchase away, one promotion away? One election or transition or romance away. Paul deals with this in, in Philippians 4. And he says the antidote to this is acknowledging God. I dealt with a little bit in my journal this morning with, with Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. And I, when I'm memorizing this, I sometimes leave those words out. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then verse 7 follows. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. Are you acknowledging God every day? Let me flesh that word out for you. What's your thanks life like? Are you thanking him regularly? Regardless of what happened today? Regardless of whether or not you got a runner in your hose? Regardless of whether or not um, I had a, had a nick on my neck this week and it, it ruined a brand new white dress shirt you know, am I thanking God regardless of that stuff? Because we're going to get that stuff. Paul has learned, as Daniel learned, to thank God in spite of the circumstances of my life. And I invite you to go with me there.